we would be honored if you would join us. All right, everyone, welcome to another exciting episode of Dungeon Crawlers, where we are hopefully going to make you pee your pants. Just because we're going to scare you with our topic of horror. Yes, it's that time of year. It's time to talk about horror. It's time to talk about things that make you go screaming down the hallway because the lights are out and something fell over in the dark. Urination notwithstanding, we do hope you all have a good time this evening. I'm not quite sure that I'm on board with encouraging any of our audience members to stay where they are, so to speak. Uh, no, 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 no. In place urination, super fun. Yes. That's why I show up with a catheter every time. I'm <laughs> you are singing the song of my people. <laughs> that is the scariest thing I have heard yet tonight. Oh, dear. You know, there it does go in up... through the mouth, right? Yeah. yeah. Every you know, time. Working at haunted houses. The the best thing in the world is you, you know you've done your job when someone walks out of the room and they have peed their pants. You know I've actually literally <laughs> worked in a haunted house before. Yeah, so have I. Um, yeah. So it's lots of fun. Uh, you know? those, we're going to circle back to that later. Yes. So horror. You know, uh, we have Michael Brent Collings with us. We have Tasha Wilhouse talking to us. Uh, Ka- Tasha does Copper Shock podcast. Uh, she also she writes uh, horror stories based horror stories based on other people's stories, if I remember correctly. Yeah, so episodes are kind of a blend between either uh, like a historical fact that's kind of got a a weird, creepy edge to it, and then pair it with a personal experience that's told through kind of a story narrative. Okay. And then Michael Brent Collings, uh, he just writes scary books that make you wet yourself. Uh, Yes, uh, I've even read some of those stories and not been able to walk through my own house without (laughs) lights coming on uh, because it has terrified me so much. Which it says a lot because horror movies just don't do it for me. Anyways, so we're gonna we're gonna start off talking about this. You know what? We're gonna do is kind of like a panel style. Uh, we'll, we'll hold a conversation. We'll go through. We'll ask questions. Uh, Alton and Krebs are here along with me. So first off, what makes a good horror story? What is it? makes that story instead because i mean horror is just a version of fantasy in some cases or it could be a true story but what is it what is the elements that make a good horror story well i mean far as uh, far as what i consider good horror you know it's actually something that i asked a whole panel of horror writers the last time i was at a convention is that exact same question and what they said is here's the thing about horror horror you've got monsters you've got serial killers you've got ghosts you've got demons you've got a whole a rainbow of different things that could be considered horror so while everything else in barnes and noble gets like a fantasy bookshelf and horror's just got like a whole shelf because it's just a whole big range of things because what scares you is different to everybody so what they told me is because i said i don't want to alienate an audience so how do i do that without you know abandoning anybody and they just said write what scares you And so on a couple of my episodes, I've actually talked about some personal phobias I have and then just putting it into kind of an emotional context of why that feeling raises that way. And so if I could emotionally walk someone through that scare, they actually have a tendency to resonate with it. Interesting. Michael Brent, do you agree? Well, I like what you said about walking someone through. I mean, ultimately, 
you know, going along with the Barnes and Noble thing, first of all, horror as a genre, it's just a marketing thing. It's just the bookshelf in Barnes and Noble or the section in Amazon that they happen to shelve that there. And it's a shorthand so people can go and say, I will find a series of tropes more likely in this area than if I'm looking in romance. Um, but if you're talking about horror, like, you know, generally the way people understand it, something scary, it's just that it's like you said, um, walking them in through that. The, the effective horror story is any story that causes the audience, the listener, the watcher, the reader to be afraid. Um, mm -hmm. That comedy and pornography are the three kinds of storytelling, the only three that are universally and mostly interested in a physiological effect. I mean, you know, if you're telling a love story, there's sort of this like, oh, and you get this nice warm feeling. But in horror, you want somebody to shriek and you know, the results are obvious and don't need to be gone into. And, you know, and comedy, you're trying to get somebody to laugh. So it's it's anything that you can get that sort of terrified reaction functions as horror. And there's a million different ways to do that. And it is, it's so personal reader to reader, um, you know, which you can look at any horror story, like a real horror story. And you'll see people that are like, this is the most boring thing I've ever read. And there's people that say, I couldn't, I couldn't go to bed for three days. Um, so that's kind of what makes it a little tough is finding something that's as universal as possible. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's kind of an interesting question that I want to chase down for a second. Uh, no, no jokes about that. I'm sorry. It's a horror episode. I probably shouldn't be using words like that. But nevertheless, uh, I want to follow that path for a minute. Um, we, we talk a lot about writing what you know, and that's something that you've both brought up is getting into that space of being able to be scared yourself so that you can communicate that onwards. But what are some of the things that each of you do to not only put yourself into a space in which you can write something effectively, but then how do you write it effectively? Because if somebody is already naturally afraid of something, it's very easy for them to get invested. But somebody who may only have something tugging at the very back of their head, I imagine that that's probably a more difficult thing to do. Um, Michael, you want to start? Sure. And, you know, that's where character work comes in is you're trying to get people to um, associate themselves with that character. You know, people talk a lot about like in horror movies, there's the close up shot. And I, I listen to audiences talk about that, like, oh, she's going to turn around and there's going to be a dead body or the bad guy's going to be there. And why do they even do that? It's like everybody knows. And I, I kind of laugh because that's not the point of that shot. Yeah, that's a side benefit is is maybe surprising a couple of people if you do it well. But really what it is, is you're bringing the audience in close. You're showing them only what the actor on the screen can see so that they step into the shoes of the actor. And so in, you know, your kind of schlocky horror, it is always, you know, hot people banging in the woods because even though, like, I've certainly never been in that situation. Obviously, I've never been a hot person and my woods banging is pretty limited. But it kind of taps into a primal, this is something we're all interested in. We're all interested in sex and human relationships and stuff. So that when something interrupts that, it's jarring and it's scary. Um, similarly, in kind of, I don't know, if you want to see more sophisticated horror you find characters that people can deeply associate with so that when something bad happens to them the people feel it themselves so like a good example um under the dome by stephen king i've talked to so many people about that book um that huge giant 
brick of a book. And 100% of the time, it comes down to, I loved it. It was so cool. I loved the characters. The dome was neat. I loved the characters. I loved the characters. And the other half is like, oh, there were too many people acting like idiots and jackasses, so I couldn't enjoy it. And that's a really stunningly good example of the association requirement. You know, the people that could associate themselves and empathize and feel for the characters they were like, this is a terrifying story. And people who were just sitting there going, mm, this is a jackass. They deserve what they get. They checked out after page 800 and, you know, only got through a third of the book. Well, I would say um, Stephen so, King is really great at writing jackasses for characters. Like he does yeah. a fantastic job to write the person you love to hate. Yeah, but that's different than being a, like if if the part where I'm I'm saying jackass meaning somebody who makes such bad choices that are ridiculous for them. If they're making internally consistent choices that are stupid, you're like, well that's a stupid character and and there's some level of appreciation for that cuz we've all acted stupid. But the the thing that people talk about is like why did she run up the stairs instead of running the front door? She's is smart throughout this whole movie but as soon as the killer shows up she turns into an idiot and right then we're just, instead of being her or him i'm saying her just because that's sort of the stereotype in that particular situation um and so you need to make a character who is somebody we can relate to either because we've been that person because we want to be that person interesting it's somebody we want to see die it's not really a horror story it's kind of an extended joke yeah, so Tasha, elaborate on kind of your thoughts on that. But the other thing that I know you're inevitably going to bring up, so I'm going to tee it up for you as well, is um, I uh, I know we've talked before about dungeon sense. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a throwaway a throwaway term with my family. You know, Dungeons and Dragons. It goes with you walk into a dungeon room. Do you go around touching every stone that's got some kind of crazy rune on it? Do you decide that you want to take the gem out of the statue's hand? Do you want to actually fire the first shot into something? Like, dungeon sense. What is the most common actual good way of figuring out how to recognize your most successful path to survival? And so that's the most frustrating part for me in some horror films because it's like, you understand that's a bad idea, right? Like it's, it is a trope these days, right? Like it's the trope of, I mean, there's even a Geico commercial where there's a group of teenagers that run into this garage, this shanty garage full of chainsaws. And yeah. And they're like, man, this is such a good idea. We I should totally hide here. It's hilarious. Well, and they because... even turn the trope on its head by taking the um, allegedly vapid or ditzy blonde who's in hysterics. And she's like, why can't we just go and get into the running car? Yes. And like <laughs> they just turn on and they're like, no, let's hide behind that wall of chainsaws. Good idea. Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to dungeon sense, it feels intuitive to me because it's like, oh, if I'm going to be in a terrible situation, I've got to figure out where am I going to breathe? Where are my exits? You know, just how how those things function to survive. But not everyone is like that. And so I think it's actually kind of important to establish some characters flaws that would help accentuate those items that consider them as moronic. I mean, it's something that even Joss Whedon kind of poked fun about in Cabin in the Woods is you've got this set of teenagers going out to the cabin and then they start acting stupid where they're like, we're going to touch all the cursed looking things. And then the two hot people go off into the woods, have sex. But then they come to realize that they're actually being manipulated into performing those actions in order to fulfill a centuries long ritual. And so it's, it's great that it turns that trope on its head because 
it's like you have to establish what the flaws are of the character in order to make those stupid choices believable to a certain extent, in my opinion. So then that's a good question. You know, the, the reason that tropes exist is because people found ways to deliver stories or to exercise a mechanism that ended up being effective in some scenario. And now they're just using it uh, sort of like a convenience crutch or maybe they don't have a better idea. So then you two as authors, how do you avoid writing characters, uh, taking actions against their normal state? How do you avoid writing characters that are so tropish they're not believable? I think well, part of that... Oh, oh sorry, go ahead. go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Knock it out. Going, <laughs> yeah. Well, something for me, as far as I think about character choice as an internalized decision, an externalized decision, is that you have to keep them consistent in that decision-making. So if someone who's internally decisioned as far as how they are going to approach a problem, whether they're going to end up be frustrated and walk away, whether it's going to be burst out cussing and then walk away, just like ways to consistently make your character's decisions before they have to make the big decision. So as long as your character is consistently making the decision that they have on their natural path up to the kingpin decision of the horror trope or, you know, the moment they arrive at, that's how I keep it consistent. And that makes it more believable for me. Uh, how do you feel about it? Oh, I was just going to say, you know, tropes are all they are is shorthand. You know, they're they're horror jargon and and they can be very effective to get us from point A to point B very quickly so we can get on with the rest of the alphabet. Um, the danger comes not in using a trope, but when it's either all you do is just string together a series of been there, done that's or when you fail to really explore a trope, because all these tropes, if you think about them, um, that that you tend to see the, the cabin in the woods, the ditzy, uh, sex-starved cheerleader, the dumb jock, uh, you know, the guy with the hacksaw slash hammer slash machete, whatever. They're all things that, that have not been plumbed to their fullest. I mean, there's there's infinite amount of story material there. You run into trouble when somebody watching the movie or, or reading the book says, I've seen that done better here. I've seen that done better here. I've seen that done better here so your job as an author um in my case you want so that if you do use a trope you're going to do it in a way that people have never seen before or in a way they've seen before but you just um, and, and that's part of why, you know, as an author or a, a screenwriter, part of my job is to watch lots of movies and read lots of books so I can see what my bar is. Um, and, and there's, but there's no shame in utilizing a trope. It's just, it, be, it becomes a problem when it's a, a lazy. I think I agree with fair on it, you know? Yeah. yeah, I think I agree with you. I think tropes can be used in the right place and the right time. But I also think it's important to kind of emphasize the medium that it's being used in. So if it's just inside of reading like page printed words and that you know that your your readership is going to be projecting those words how they want to read them. Whereas in my case, they are forced to listen to my voice and what kinds of sounds that I am emitting through my show Copper Shock. So with that, uh, whether how you're writing it down is set up differently than how I would enunciate it through a verbal communication because much of the cues that I do to kind of help set up that trigger or those tropes of like hey someone's going to be watching me through the crack or you know I turn around and the car that was following me is still there 
is that I have to manage audio cues versus like descriptive cues in a way that kind of hits the emotional impact of the character in the exact moment. Something that a professor taught me at University of Utah was that when he does sound mixing, is that he often looks at the boulder scene from Indiana Jones. And what's interesting about that scene is that the trumpets and the violins don't strike up until the moment Indiana turns to run. He can see this big giant boulder coming at him, but internally you don't see his anxiety hit until he starts to bolt. And so that's what I try to use within horror is it's not so much about, you know, just a, a squeaky violin at the right moment. It's the squeaky violin at the right moment for the character inside the story. Yeah. So let's kind of branch off of that for a second. Um, you know, uh, Tasha, obviously you've got your podcast. But I also know that you've done some short stories and things like that written. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Michael Brent, obviously you have both screenwriting and you know, novelization and short story. So Mm -hmm. what are kind of the ways that uh, you guys see key differences between those mediums and how do you address your writing styles to help meet those audience? And we'll start with Um, Michael if that's okay. Oh, sure. Uh, Sorry, I jumped on that. I apologize. Um, So what I tell... Oh, woohoo! What I tell people <laughs> is, um, you know, there's three basic, and I, there's there's obviously exceptions, and there's kind of bastardizations and, and differences, but the three basic kinds of storytelling are prose, which is, you know, your written stories that are meant to be read internally, and then there are plays, you know, which on the stage, live performances and, like, podcast things would probably go into that, and then there's movies, which... All three of those have a different purpose. When you're talking about a book, the purpose of that book is talking about a person's struggle against him or herself. It's internal stuff. You see it through a point of view. It's through the thoughts of either a character or a narrator or both. If it's a stage play, you're talking about interpersonal conflict, which is why you can have a play where there's two people sitting on a bench and that's the whole play, just waiting for a character who never shows up. And it's all about the little disputes and battles they get into. And then in a movie, it's visual stuff. It's a person versus the outside world. And so if you're writing a horror movie, it's going to be focused on what's being seen on the screen, obviously, what the characters are seeing. You're not going to spend a whole lot of time on smell because you can't just, you cannot visually show that other than a character like wrinkling their nose and going, ew, that's stinky. So you spend a lot of time detailing things that are scary looking. Um, And that's why there's a lot of boobs and blood and horror, frankly, because again, it's about a physiological reaction and we're biologically wired to react during those things oddly enough with fright in both in both cases you know Mm -hmm. um whereas in a book you're talking about diving deep into the mentality of somebody so you are going to be a lot more stressed about their perception there's a lot more likely to be an unreliable narrator in a book simply because it's naturally a narrative format where someone is telling your brain this story, hopefully as cleanly as possible, communicating. And in a movie there, you know, when I'm writing a movie, I'm saying, here's the scariest thing on the screen. And hopefully the special effects guy and the director and the person in charge of costumes and everybody gets it all right. So as a movie writer, it's oddly enough, it's a lot less up to me. I'm going to put one or two key images. I'm going to say, you know, cabin in the woods, external exterior cabin in the woods night 
spooky stuff, you know, lots of <laughs> blood. And, and it's kind of out of my hands. Whenever people say, oh, why don't they make any good movies? I'm like, it is a miracle they make any good movies, considering the fact that all thousand of those people in the credits have the absolute power to ruin it. So, <laughs> That's you know, a great but, point. so I'm a much smaller cog in the big machine. And it's my job just to give the director and the actors a sense of what's happening externally, what they're seeing around them. And through dialogue, convey both the subtext and the text of the particular scene and hopefully say it in an interesting way. Because even with screenplays, the first person I'm giving it to is a reader. It's going to be read. And that's the person who's going to give me money. You know, the audience isn't giving me money. It's the producer who reads it after their seven interns say it's okay. Um, so either way, it still functions as written word from my perspective. But as a screenplay, I know it's just a jumping off point. Whereas with a book, I'm like, it's you, me, the couch, and the comfy blanket. I'm going to scare you now. So it's a lot more intense of a situation in a lot of ways. I would agree with that. I think that's a very, that's a great perspective that I haven't thought about before. Because a passage I read from William Goldman, who's a prolific screenwriter. He wrote Wonderful. Maverick, yeah, Misery, and Misery in particular. Princess Bride, that's right. And William Goldman wrote the book and that screenplay for that one in particular. Yeah. Uh, but uh, William Goldman has a book called Which Lie Did I Tell, which has to do with like his perspective on writing. And he told a story about how he translated the book Misery from Stephen King into the James Conn classic with Kathy Bates that we all know. And one of the scenes was actually the hobbling scene. It was completely different in the book. Uh, as anyone who's read Misery knows that it's not so much just a big sledgehammer that crushes bones. It's actually an axe. He literally cuts off feet. But when William Goldman came to the director and said, hey, I can't cut off feet, the director was like, that's what's in the book. Why are you not doing it this way? It's because William Goldman spoke up and said, emotionally, I don't know if it's the same thing between these two mediums. Everybody's rolled their ankle and they know how much it hurts. But no one's like cut off an appendage. And so I think audience members are actually going to empathize a lot more with what's happening and feel more horrified about it if we do it this way. And I'm really glad that they did stick with it because that even to this day, that is a hard scene to watch. That was mm -hmm. dang effective. Mm -hmm. yeah. Watching his whole foot go 90 degrees. That was cool. So I much. know. Yeah. And if you want a good example of the differences actually in the end of the uh, his, his adventures on screenwriting, I think it is he talks about he he writes this short story into a screenplay and gives it to his director friend who basically says this is the stupidest script I've, I've ever written. And it's a short so dear to William Goldman's heart and he tries to write it for the guy and he includes the notes the director gave and it all boils down to like how the heck am I supposed to show it's a magical haircut, you know. <laughs> it's just full of those differences. It's and I'm not saying that as a joke. It's about a magical haircut. That's the adaptation. Um, and it's it, it was a really fascinating read that really kind of opened my eyes to the difference between those two. Um, one danger to novel writing is that you do get into their heads. And in, in, a, in a movie, when I'm writing a screenplay, it's very sparse. I have, you know, 10 to 20,000 words somewhere in there. In a book, I have 100,000 or more if I feel like it. And you can sit there and wax enthusiastic for two pages about something that doesn't need it. Um, one of the only time my father's a very well-respected horror critic and writer himself. And the only time I saw him get visually like 
angry over a book. He threw it across the room. And it was the adaptation of a Rob Zombie film. And he said there's this scene where there's like a one second shot in the film and it's super effective. And in this book, it's four pages long. And it's so boring. Mm -hmm. And it's so clear the person writing this novelization has no understanding of how to translate it to the book so it has impact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so if I can dig in there, then I think this is sort of a, a tropish cliche question, but I am curious, you know, horror is such a specific genre. It's a delicate genre. You have to do it right or it's completely ineffective um, for you, starting with Tasha and then, and then moving on to Michael. Um, what was what was the book that you read that flipped that switch for you where you said, I can do this. I need to do this. I have to write these stories. What what was your literary influence that flipped that switch for you? Ray Bradbury, 100%. I love that man to wow. pieces. Yeah, he's got, I mean, it's interesting because when you think Ray Bradbury, everybody thinks of Fahrenheit 451. They think mm-hmm. sci-fi. They think rocket ships and spaceships. But Ray Bradbury's got some really creepy stories. He has this one story in particular. Uh, it was a short story, and I need to think of it really quickly. Dandelion one. Yeah, well, Dandelion Wine was one, but it wasn't as creepy as much. Dandelion Wine had to do with, like, a small town where everyone was kind of perfect until you got a really good close look at what their life was like. And there was one story in particular about a man who fancied himself as an inventor, and he spends all of his time in his garage creating something called the happiness machine. That's all he wants to spend his time on doing. And once he completes it, he sends his family in there, and they come out, and they are bawling and they are desperate and they are so depressed and sad because they got to see what happiness was and it would never last for them because it lives in the machine and it cannot follow with them and it was just like this weird twist of horror for me because it's like you lived with some or you cannot live with something so desperately that that's my version of horror not so much a suspense but kind of a, a loss a missing piece even something macabre that you live with. So Ray Bradbury for me, what about you, Michael? I would, first of all, Ray Bradbury, yeah, he is horror. Even his non-scary stuff is, is pretty horrific if you really dig into it. And the Martian Chronicles is a masterwork as far as suspense, science fiction, horror, social commentary, all wrapped up in such nice little beautiful um, just morbidly beautiful packages. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember what my first moment was because when I say my dad is a respected horror critic, I mean, he literally wrote the first uh, book-length scholarly analysis of Stephen King and then went on to write a dozen more. And he ended up being the HWA grand, or World Horror or something grandmaster. He's the only academic ever to get that title. And so I don't remember because I grew up with screaming and typing in the next room. (laughs) Like my dad was either watching a scary movie, writing about a scary book, you know, and he walked me in when I was super young to the library he had. He had 10,000 plus titles just at our house. And he showed us the showed me the shelves and said, if you can reach it, you can read it because he had the younger stuff down low. And I (laughs) went and got a, you know, got a step stool. I discovered ladders very early. So I grew up reading Stephen (laughs) King and Shirley Jackson and, you know, Bram Stoker and all of those things. And so they all just mixed together. And childhood was just a never ending wash of wonderful 
scares. Um, I do think things like The Haunting of Hell House, Shirley Jackson, mm. um, Matheson, you know, there's definitely giants that I return to again and again um, whenever I feel the need to see somebody who really knows what they're doing. Uh, but I, I, I honestly can't remember, oh, this is the one where I'm going to live with this because I just freaking grew up with it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I could just rattle off in a whole bunch of stories that I, I know I love, like Agatha Christie, And Then There Were None. That's a fantastic book, even today. Yeah. And then uh, as far as additional rewriter stories, as I sat here thinking about it, because it wasn't on the spot, I finally remembered what it was. Yeah. It was um, it had to do with this midget that would actually pay a quarter at this kind of carnival every day yes. just to walk into the fun house. And the woman who took the tickets and took his quarter every day wanted to know why he visited every day. And so her and the strong man go to kind of stalk this midget once he came in the next day. And he was just standing in front of this one funhouse mirror that made him look taller and made him look like this regular sized man. And like it was just something that he would allow himself to bask in just for a couple of minutes every day of what it would be like to be a regular height. And then the next day. The, the midget came back into the funhouse and the strong man, as a joke, had turned the mirror upside down. And the midget ran out just crying and screaming, and he was just so disappointed and desperate. And I just remember thinking, that is awful. Like, that is just not just mean, that's evil. Like, how could you do that to a soul? And so, but it, you had to be Ray Bradbury to think of what it would be like to do that to another human. And so that was the story where I was like, I want to write a bunch of short stories like that. Not so much as like expressing horrible things in the world, but to put them into a fictional context where we can face them and also understand them on a human level. Love it. You know, go, going back to that first question about what it is that makes good horror, I mean, that's a, such an excellent example because not many of us are little people that want to go to a funhouse mirror and look at ourselves six feet tall, but we've all had that experience of standing in front of a you know mirror metaphorically or, you know, Physically as well, we've all looked in, in the mirror and been like, my date is going to hate this or, oh, my gosh, look at this <laughs> pimple or or we've looked at ourselves, you know, emotionally, spiritually with our business or whatever it is. We've all felt ourselves not measure up and we all would could identify with what if I went to someone and wanted them to make me feel better. And instead they magnified all my flaws. And so that was mm -hmm. such a that's a perfect example of him taking something that'll never happen to any of us really but making it matter to us by saying you know in your heart you've had an analogous experience and so we identify and i mean like he runs off and kills himself if i remember correctly it's been like 20 or 30 years so i might be misremembering but i man i remember reading that too and i as soon as you started there's a you know there's a midget i was like oh i know where we're going with this yeah. and I, I felt gut punched again because it's so it was so traumatizing to read that as a kid and be like, oh, my gosh, I feel that way every day. Mm. I mean, for the record, I don't relate at all. I have the perfect face for podcasting. So, yeah, <laughs> I tell people I have the face of I have a perfect face for writing with my face. <laughs> you know, See, I, I, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Elton. You go ahead. No, no, it's it, 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 it's it's just interesting that 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 piece of the human experience really is so central, but we've also touched on tropes a number of times. Um, and it is, it is very, very easy, especially when we're dealing with common human experiences or things that people can comprehend at some level or another. 
to accidentally cross the line from scary and go into comedic because we've turned them on their heads so hard, so to speak, that it's no longer scary. It's just funny in your guys' minds. And we'll start with Tasha. What are, you know, the critical things that differentiate horror from comedy and how do you make sure that your writing doesn't accidentally trip that line? I mean, setting up good expectations. It's, I mean, it's like if you break the world, like if you set up good world rules and you don't break them, then it's far believable. One of my favorite horror films is a Netflix film called Hush. It's an incredible film in the fact that they set up a very specific role of your main character who is deaf. She's a horror writer herself and that she constantly thinks of different possibilities for her characters as they proceed through stories. And that she is doing the exact same thing in her head is that she can't hear what's going on, but at the same time, you understand that she has a thought process that she can express in multiple different ways. And it makes the film pretty believable. I mean, I don't know. Film. any. Yeah, it's a, it's a great film. And so that's, that's a film where I'm like, if you set up proper expectations for the world and you don't break your rules, then it's not funny because then you're like, Oh, she's in trouble. It's not like there's some magical thing that's going to happen to her to get her out of the situation. Interesting, Mike. Do you have something similar that's kind of a building block for you? Oh, I totally. I actually give a presentation called Horror and Humor, One Side of the Same Coin, uh, because they're, for my money, they're exactly the same. They they do exactly the same things plot-wise. They center on uncomfortable situations. The, the two differences between comedy and horror, I tell people, are lighting and lens length, by which I mean... Horror, again, draws you in close, so your lens length, it's going to shoot those close-up shots, and the lighting's going to be dark because you want the fear of the unknown. But the exact same thing could happen. I mean, if you are in a horror movie and the, and the main character falls down a hill, you follow him down the hill with blood splashing just enough that you can imagine more and with the sound right there. In a comedy, the same exact guy falls down the same exact hill, but it happens in broad daylight and you are watching it from 200 feet away, which allows you to distance and laugh because if you're laughing at the person up close, you're an a-hole. I mean, you're not like you're a sociopathic, horrible person. So they draw it back and they do the exact same thing. They're just showing it brightly and saying, it's funny. Why? Because it's happening to somebody else. So the key distinction is there is, it's not a plot difference. It's not anything happening that's different. It's no, it's no uh, accident that the most successful parody series of all time in movies is the scary movie series mm -hmm. based on horror movies because they're just doing exactly the same things only it's happening to him so it's okay and because of that you know you talk about how do you avoid flipping the switch i don't i love flipping the switch i think horror and comedy first of all they just go together and second of all it makes it so much more effective because when someone's laughing They've stepped away and they've said, oh, I'm safe after all. Ha ha ha. And then you punch him in the groin and you stab him in the back and you cut their head off and you're like, weren't safe after all, were you? And it is so much more effective in that moment than if you just, you know, if you kick someone and kick someone and kick someone, they're going to go, I bet there's another kick coming. But if you let them escape just enough to think they're safe and then pull them back in, that 
is real terror. That teaches them that nothing is safe. That's why, like Psycho, the famous scene in the shower, it's not that she got stabbed. It's that she was naked in the shower, and that's no fair. I should not be at any kind of danger when I'm all naked getting sudsy. That is off limits for bad guys. And that taught us it wasn't off limits. You know, the the movie Jaws taught us if you go in the water, it's not safe. It's dangerous. I, I hear the freaking Jaws soundtrack every time I go in the deep end of the pool. And so <laughs> it's true. showing you. Right. I'm I, I know I'm like I'm a, I'm a grown man. There's like a 95 percent chance there's not a shark in here, but I still <laughs> hear it. And and that is so effective as horror. It's like, are you sure you're safe? I'm going to teach you that no matter how safe you feel, you're not really safe. And the best way to do that is to make them laugh. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, the, uh... one of the one of the scariest scenes in any movie I've ever seen was the first time I saw The Ring, which, by the way, was my introduction to Japanese psychological horror. J psych horror and um, the scariest scene uh, that really robbed me of any sense of hope or safety was one of the characters being chased by one of the ghosts runs to her bed and gets under the covers. And then she like feels something under the covers and she looks and it's in, it's under the covers with her. And this is very oh, much the shower the principle. Grudge. Yeah. Oh, excuse me. You don't know. No, you're yeah. right. It was the grudge. Ju-on. It was the grudge, not the ring. Oh. Yeah, it was Juwon. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I'm sorry. You're absolutely right. It was the grudge, which actually I the ring did scare the tar out of me. And it was my first J Psych film, but the grudge was even scarier, in my opinion. Because yeah. um, no fair. I'm in bed yeah. and the covers yeah. are over my head. Yeah. It, I, I told <laughs> and my I wife should it be removed. protected. Yeah. It removed the sanctity of being under the covers for safety, right? And which which in the real world, covers are not going to save you. But in so many movies, when uh, this was an adult, mind you, but it, you have you have a kid, you have an adolescent, or even an adult that goes and hides, and they hide under the covers, and then everything goes silent, and they like they look, and nothing's there, right? Of course, there's a jump scare coming, but it's always outside the bed. Once they once they lower the shields, it's not under the shields with them, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and so that was like one of the scariest scenes ever. Um, I'm kind of curious. I want to parlay that into sort of like a sort of a foil question. Um, what is something that you see repeated over and over again in horror that at this point you believe just needs to stop? What is done and needs to be weeded out of the horror genre? Nightmare on Elm Street and, you know, every Friday the 13th movie. Every Friday the 13th is trash. I, I, I'm i a huge horror fan. No, no. The first Friday the 13th actually has value yeah everything after that i think is garbage but everything after the first the first movie yeah i mean here's the thing about the the horror trope that i would love to get rid of but it's never going to happen is that it horror only happens to teenagers like it's it's (laughs) either teenagers or parents or single parents i guess is a very specific way of saying it like if you're a single parent and you have a kid and I mean, like, don't get me wrong. I loved um, that independent horror film from Australia. The name is escaping Baba me at the moment. Baba Duke. Thank you. Like, because that that Baba Duke monster is like a personification, like a manifestation of her grief of the lo- the loss of her husband. But when you go back to the ring, it's like this single working mom who's got a creepy kid. But it's like horror doesn't just happen to teenagers, and it doesn't just happen to single parents that there there are other characters that can be explored. In fact, there's one new horror film that just came out that I kind of want to go see. It's called, I think it's called Come Play, where it has to mm-hmm. do with, I think, like mm-hmm. an autistic kid that is yeah. experiencing paranormal activity. I want to see that so bad. 
Yeah. And I thought, man, that's actually great. They're really branching out on what kind of characters we're going to explore. But Hollywood won't do that. And the biggest reason why is because horror films, like you could film them for dirt cheap and always make a profit. Always make a profit, no matter how bad of a film it is. That's true. And um, so, yeah. so yeah. But, but that brings up a good question, because usually, I mean, in order to evoke horror, you have to have, like you were saying earlier, Tasha, you have to take something. And one of the worst things to steal is innocence or vitality, right? Um, I'm actually, I'm currently wrapping up the director's cut of Dr. Sleep, which I've never seen before. I've never seen the, the theatrical release. I just went right to director's cut. And uh, as a fan of The Shining, I find Dr. Sleep to be a fun, like it's an excellent film in terms of telling a story, but there is one scene that for me, like it, it, it went a little too far. Like it actually hurt me as an audience member, not just sympathetically, mm -hmm. but empathetically. And it was, um, I mean, spoilers, uh, but there is a scene where they murder a child through torture, mm -hmm. uh, and it has purpose and it has exposition, but and they got a brilliant child actor for the scene, but that's what made it so difficult. He was so realistically believable in that moment, and it was so hard to watch a child being victimized by a group of adults. Um, so if 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 one of the things that you're kind of tired of is that, you know, horror only happens to teenagers or horror only happens to single parents, especially single moms, then can you give us an example or can you come up with a scenario where you have a where you have a less vulnerable or a less cliche target that you can then turn into an effective horror victim? A horror victim or someone that can counter what is happening to them. There was one film, I think it was Annabelle 2, where it had to do with Annabelle's like origins in this kind of girl's home. And the one that was being haunted the most was what would probably be considered the weakest person of the group. It was a girl in a wheelchair. And I was actually kind of looking forward to this kind of meeting of battle between someone who's perceived as the weakest person who can't really go play with the other kids who can confront this thing. And then it kind of went more, more straight toward horror of no, she's possessed and things are just going to get worse and before they will never get better. And so that was one where I was like, I was really looking forward to maybe trying something different with that. Um, but as far as like a character who has a flaw, like that's what's crazy important. I remember I wanted to rewrite a horror film that I watched and I didn't like. And I'm like, you know what? If I could actually restructure it to where I would actually think this would be a good film and then see if I could repitch it. It had to do with, uh, oh, the names are escaping me again. Describe but it, it has, describe it. I love this game. Okay, so there's there's a creepy house. No. Oh, God. <laughs> Monster um, house. That's what I was yes. thinking. <laughs> All right, go ahead. So, so so go ahead, describe it. Okay, so there is a name that you shall not speak, because once you speak it, it starts to follow you, and it starts to... Oh, that's... Uh, the bye-bye man? Bye -bye yes, man. It was actually that one. pretty darn good, I thought. I, here's the thing. There were gaps within the lore that I didn't understand. And so I had to go back and research it later because the thing about Bye Bye Man is that he's got this full backstory that wasn't totally yes. explored in the film that I didn't understand. Like he does have a full lore behind it, but you had to understand what it was before you went to the film. And because I didn't, I didn't get a full experience. I'm with you. The exposition was terrible in that film. But there was something about it where I'm like, I can't really like get engaged with these main characters. And so if I were to choose something, I would actually choose that the main character, the main guy or whatever. What if he had a stutter? 
what if he actually had problems with plosives like B and P? And he can't really say it in order to stop something from happening or to prevent it from hurting someone right. else. Like what kind of awesome mechanic would that have ended up being because he had a character flaw? And because so of a, of a perceived weakness, he actually ends up being the most uh, sort of invulnerable in a sense to to the main antagonist. Exactly. But, yeah. But maybe he avoided that because that way it's not a rip off a bill from it. Uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> I guess there's that. Yes. That too. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm still definitely interested to hear from Michael Brent um, what your trope is and then now how you would address it. All right. So, I, you know, like I said earlier, uh, I don't have a problem with any tropes. I have a problem with poor execution of tropes. Um, I love the saying mediocre artists borrow from other artists. Extraordinary ones steal it and make it better. And so I don't have a problem with any trope. I do hate there's one thing I hate, and it's not just in horror. It's in romantic comedy. It's in love stories. It's in anything where something major happens and the person that the character who it happened to has a trust relationship, a good relationship. They're like, are you OK? And the person goes, I'm fine. Or like, what happened? Nothing happened, you know, and it's like, well, you could take care of every problem for the rest of the movie or the rest of the book by saying here's what happened, you know, and it's such yeah. a stupid way of, of making what shouldn't have been a full story anyways into a full story or of, you know, trying to make more suspense or whatever. But it's like the second someone goes, uh, here's a good example. I really like the show evil. It's, it's got a oh, lot of wanting to watch that. that. Okay. So the best thing about it is it kind of takes a neutral position on there's an, there are atheists and there are people who believe. And the most fun for me is watching the dialogue between them because they're actually having a dialogue. There's not a lack of respect. Neither one believes the other, but they're both like, let's talk about it. So I'm really in it for that. But at one point, the main character, her mom is dating someone who is either a demon from hell or a psychopath. And, and this woman finds out the main character and her mom's like, what's, what's wrong with you? And she's like, nothing you know and i'm going oh or you could say uh this guy makes jokes about kids being raped and may want your eternal soul we're not sure yet you know and and stuff like that it's just such a stupid move and i get it if it's if it's somebody who has no reason to talk to that person fine you know if it's a guy who's had a really bad relationship with the law and a ghost comes to him and then the sheriff goes what's wrong with you and he goes i don't want to tell you that makes sense but it's like, oh, I love you, mom. I love you too, son. I love you so much, mom. I love you too. What happened, son? I'm not telling you, mom. It's just, just dumb. Yeah. I, I'm totally with you on that one. Um, my my wife, for a very, very long time, was a fan of the Gilmore Girls. She still is. And there are Ugh, so many shows that kind of so pray. That, there are so many shows that prey on that. I, I call it the the CW formula. <laughs> but um, but uh. There are so many scenes, not just in those shows, but like in films, in books. Um, but I'm I'm very much like I have a film background, so I'm a very visual person. And so like there are so many scenes where you have this conflict like you're talking about and uh, they they address uh, aggressively, usually some violation of trust or belief. And it's usually a misperception or a gross exaggeration of what really happened. And it could be fixed in one or two statements. It could actually be fixed with, 
wait, that's a misunderstanding. It was actually right. this. And then they go right. like, oh, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I flew off the handle. I should have talked to you about this first. Right. <laughs> and, th and then that would have been it. But instead what happens is they make some pointed snarky statement, storm off. And the other person just stands there like their feet are in cement and they go, ah. And then it's like three more episodes before they can fix the problem. And it's yeah. like one sentence, pal, one sentence. That yeah. I think needs to go out of all storytelling in all so, genres. So lazy and so crazy. And especially in horror because it is like, okay, mom, you're dating an ax murderer. And the lady's like, look, just because you're having trouble in your marriage. And she walks <laughs> off and I'm going like, okay, so this is my mom. That's exactly what I did. I laughed, but I'm going, this is my mom. My dad's died some time ago or whatever, and she's dating this new guy. And I found out he's one of America's most wanted. Like, he's on the FBI top 10. And I'm like, Mom, he actually murders baby seals and then uses them to make billy clubs, which he kills children with. And she goes, I don't believe you. You have a bad relationship and walks off. And I go, well, I guess she doesn't believe me. I better let her go. She's her own person. <laughs> no, you run after and you're like, I don't think you understand what I just said. Like, he will murder you and make a wallet out of your face skin. Don't date him. And then she's all, she's all, just stop it. You don't even know what he's been through. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Oh my gosh. So all that crap. Oh, I, we can work through anything. One. We have love. No, no, no. I can change him. Yeah, I can change. Oh, I can change him. So, it's so stupid. It's so stupid. Oh, he's an ex He's not that now. bad of an ex. I'm actually angry now. I'm actually angry. <laughs> you know, like we all have misunderstandings. Ninety-nine percent of the time, when my wife and I have a knockdown, dragout fight, once we have like calmed down, it turns out. It was just a stupid misunderstanding. Yeah. But if I led with this guy is going to rape you to death, she'd probably be like, oh, wait, I think it's important. We make sure we understand each other clearly here rather than being all. No, I don't like red drapes and rushing off or some stupid non sequitur. It happens in films and in horror movies all the time. <laughs> so avoid oh, yeah. that. Avoid that. Okay. Uh, yeah, it turns oh. out that one really bothers me. Oh, okay. <laughs> we will we will take good notes. Uh, pun, but only judiciously. He lost his baby hedgehog when he was a young boy. Yeah. So he no. has to club the baby seals. Right. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, Michael Brandt Collings, I feel like you and I are kindred spirits all of a sudden. <laughs> this is why we have the golden baby. <laughs> right. <laughs> like stupid crap like this. <laughs> See, so now for the three of us, we've got to answer the things that we would love to see go away and see if you guys can maybe pitch us some cool content coming up soon. All right. um, so, and uh, I, I know Krebs in particular has been biting at the <laughs> biting at the bit to give some of his opinions, but I'm going to cut him off at the knees really briefly please because do, I think you guys I agree go for, with for the listening the audience. His hands are like over his eyes and he's sweating profusely. He's so upset right now. Just waiting sweating profusely. <laughs> Those are it, tears. It, I'm laughing and there are tears like, on my face. It's like when Frank and we need, you know, drinks from the, the cup and it's just spraying off of him. <laughs> totally. <laughs> I'm a geyser of hate. That's Here we go. <laughs> See, so for me, the trope that, I really, really, really gets under my skin is when spectacle replaces story. And to yeah. be specific for horror, when gore replaces meaning. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and, uh, you know, um, a lot of writers and particularly, unfortunately, filmmakers 
utilize explosive gore as a way out of a satisfying ending because it's hard to write a satisfying ending. Yeah. An excellent example of a film that um, Josh and I went and saw with, uh, with uh, my brother-in-law was Hide and Seek. Ready or not. Excuse, ready, ready or not? The, Excuse yeah. me. Oh, not. okay. I was going to say. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, okay. So, <laughs> so I apologize. I, I get all of my movies mixed up because I'm not a cinephile. Um, but uh, nevertheless, for those of you who did not have the pleasure of seeing it, if you watch it, I suggest that you just turn off at the last 10 minutes and sit around and tell how this how you think the story should end because the film has this beautiful setup, this family who for generations has been in producing games, and I know that that's tangential to me, but that's not the point. <laughs> uh, you know, you see the backstory of how they cracked this deal with the devil, and so they have this agreement that anytime somebody in the family gets married... They pull out this wooden box and it'll spit out a card and whatever game comes up, you have to play. But if the game that comes up is hide and seek, it isn't just hide and seek. The family has to try to murder the person who drew the card. And the, the film does this beautiful, beautiful job through the entirety to make sure that things are being set up and paid off well, that there's a good balance of horror and comedy. I'm finding myself really enjoying this and watching it go deeper and deeper and spin out of control. And then all of a sudden I realize we've been here for like two hours. There can't be that much time left in the film. And then they cop out and uh, spoiler, the writers, the writers copped out. Um, or maybe it was the director who cut or content producer, or the producer yeah. <laughs> who came in and said, I don't want to do or this the anymore. In the credits that or Kathleen yeah. Kennedy somewhere in there. <laughs> I, you know what? You just, you figured it out. Thank you, Josh, for putting this to bed for me. That's what I'm here for. But, uh, they, they cop out and I, this is technically a spoiler for the film, but honestly, write your own ending. Cause it's going to be better. It turns out they just don't catch her in time. But instead of there being like ramifications for what happened or any of the character growth that has happened over the course of the night being meaningful, people's heads literally just start exploding just one by one and just blood and guts and brains everywhere. And then the film just ends. And that's the end of that. There's no further story explaining what happened or the aftermath of what happened or even a sweet cameo by the devil coming in and being like, ha ha, I finally got you or whatever. Right. It just, Heads explode and it ends. And you watch as she wanders through the house with blood and brains everywhere. And it just is extremely unsatisfying. Now, that does not mean that there isn't a place for gore or, you know, bodily harm or anything like that. But my belief is that spectacle should accentuate story, not replace it. Yeah. Nice. And, and again, Dan, what's you your know, stance on this? Oh, oh I'm sorry. sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say that's, you know, again, that goes to the, the fact that horror is such a physiological medium. And whenever you don't know how to create an emotional response strong enough to cause that heart palpitation, they do throw up blood, boobs and poop. It's my my holy trinity of lazy writing You're because right. we're biologically wired to respond to those. And it's like, oh, I can't figure out how to make them care about this character. So I'm going to blow up a bunch of heads or I can't figure out a satisfying ending. So let's lop off as many feet as we can. And people will come because you come out of the theater going, 
oh, I felt sick to my stomach. And it's an experience, you know. And so people are talking about it and it actually made them feel something. So it, my problem isn't that they that they have that gore or even that it kind of becomes more important than the story. But my problem is when they clearly did it because they couldn't think of an ending or they couldn't figure out a way to make you care without just going like, I feel kind of sick to my stomach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I would argue that probably one of the first like big hit gore for gore horror films, like gore porn, I guess is another way of saying it is saw the saw franchise. Yeah. It's because it wasn't one of us good, but after that, yeah. Yeah. Right. I I have not seen the entire series. I know there's a lot of them, but for the very first one, what they decided to do is not so much just the torturing aspects, but also pairing those torturing aspects almost as like self punishment for the horrible things that those characters had committed Mm -hmm. during their lifetimes. And so it was paired together within that because I've heard, I'm not a big gore person myself. Like I don't, I don't go to a film. I'm like, I want to see blood. It's not my kind of horror. It doesn't mean that it's not, it's not good or bad. It's just not my type because a lot of people can consider gore films like gore horror films in, in an entertainment sense, in the same way that like someone wants to go to a spy film and see a bunch of guns and shoot them up, that it's just turn your mind off entertainment. And so I think like gore is not bad to have in horror, but as long as it is used in appropriate terms. Mm-hmm. I agree. You know what? It's interesting that you say that about Saw because Saw is a really example, uh, a really good example of of use of gore. Because the first movie, if you look at it, um, I read an interview somewhere where I can't, I think it was James Wan. He said they shot it and they realized they had like a PG-13 drama. And a lot of the pickup shots of people digging through entrails, that's like Lee Whannell's hands after doing a pickup three months later so that they could do it gritty and harsh, you know. And mm-hmm. the problem is when the Hollywood people get involved because it was this little indie movie and then the Hollywood people get involved and they don't know necessarily how to reproduce interesting characters that's a hit or miss lightning in a bottle every time Mm. but they can go okay so there was these traps let's do traps again because that's just a kind of a mind puzzle for a fun afternoon and that's why the only story most people really remember is the first one Mm -hmm. and the rest of them it's like oh i had a favorite trap in these things and again it's because that's you know blood is a reproducible effect i will throw lots of blood at the camera and enough people will feel grossed out by it that they will be fooled into thinking that was horror when it was mm-hmm. really discussed mm-hmm. saw there was genuine horror because you become invested in these people either because you want to see them fail or because you want to see them succeed and the rest of it the only people that matter in the rest of the films are the ones that started out in that first film after that, it's just a bunch of disposable trap dummies. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Dan, so, so so how do you feel like like when you're looking at horror, is there some aspect of horror or horror storytelling that you feel is like done and needs to be weeded out? Yeah, I mean, so the character that's always caught by the villain or the monster or whatever in the house, that just runs around stupidly. They run upstairs, they run into the basement. If someone's attacking you, you're going to grab a weapon. You're going to attack them. You're not going to like run up the stairs and try to hide in your bedroom. I, that just seems so stupid to me. And, <laughs> and I know in, in horror movies, that's the trope. They run upstairs, they run into the basement. Why don't they run outside? Why don't they go into the garage and jump in their car and drive away? Um, 
if the if the guy is wielding a knife and he's standing in front of you in the road, run him over, right. uh, or zip past him, whatever. It's just it's really weird. I hate the that trope or dynamic where it's just like they be, lose all sense of you know intelligence. Um, you know, and I get you know if it's someone big bigger than you, you know, to run. But do it at least smart. Uh, you know, <laughs> most people have guns in their homes or a sword or something. I don't know. It's just it's the weirdest thing the way they act. Um, so that's one. Like in Scream, every love Scream, everyone starts out with some blonde girl or some girl that's super hot. That guy shows up and yeah, they run upstairs. They run in the basement or yeah. I hate that trope. Yeah. Well, and what I love about Scream is that it is so meta. In fact, they, they point that out in the film before it happens so that when it happens, you recognize the foolishness of it, right? Like they're, they're, they are self-aware. The, the film is self-aware. Um, and so in Scream, I think it, this goes back to uh, Michael Brandt's comment about it being a trope being used intelligently or being used well. And I think that Scream, the original Scream, the first one, is replete with brilliance when it comes to utilizing horror tropes well. Um, but I can definitely hear what you're saying, which is like we got to stop with people doing unnatural people things. Yeah. Um, if you watch – if you ever watch the show Scare Tactics, and I totally acknowledge that like – most reality television is just scripted nonsense and scare tactics is not uh, devoid of that either. But what's funny is uh, you can watch like some of the scare tactics episodes or you can watch pranks from like different countries uh, around Halloween time. Uh, and when people are genuinely scared, um, they do some awkward things sometimes, but more than anything, they look for an escape and mm. and they go for the shortest uh, path, you know, the path of least resistance to escape. Uh, so I totally agree with you. People doing unnatural things makes no sense. If you're going to run upstairs, run upstairs to a weapon or run upstairs to a safe room or, you know, something like that. Um, but most people would not do that. Oh, oh, there's something at my front door. Well, that's what a back door is for, right? Like you've got options. So I agree with you. Well, can I make an observation just really quick? Um, yeah. When you really dig into those, like, I think it's funny because there's almost two levels uh, because most of us are saying, oh, that's ridiculous. I, that That's not what really happens. And I always kind of want to go, oh, like last time you were attacked by an axe murderer in your front room. <laughs> so you totally like ran out the side door and thoughtfully went and got a weapon because I always think of we had uh, a home invasion in my house. Ooh. And in the movie, like the bad guys downstairs and it's so stupid because the husband's like, stay here like a moron, you know, and then goes against the possibly well-armed person with like a lamp or something, you know, and you're like, that guy's such an idiot. I've been that guy. Like there was people making noise in our house and I go to my wife and I go, get ready to call 911. And I go down the stairs in my underwear, like holding a lamp. I did exactly the same thing. <laughs> and it, you're you right, know, because you're right. You, you don't realize. And I, and I also remember when I, uh, a couple years ago, my youngest was learning how to walk and my wife had opened up the oven and she turned to the left to, you know, put down what she had gotten out. 
and my little boy came around the corner and he was at that point where he puts his hands on something to lever up (gasps) and the oven door was open and he put his hands down on that oven door and and it showed me how short-circuited we are because like what's the logical thing you run over as a parent and rip him away and i literally stood in place and went "Ah!" and like did this weird little jig thing Uh, my my preteen daughter was the one who actually made her legs move to get over there and pull him off the oven and so it's funny because on one level i it, we are upset at the perceived unreality of those moments when in fact i suspect you know if freddie shows up in my house i'm running up the stairs because they happen to be closest and because that's the direction i was pointed anyways you know it's like even in a haunted house someone jumps out at you and you see people go <laughs> and they do this weird set of yes. bodily motions you know yeah. right. there's no it's a, it's 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 not real they know going in it's not real and they still can't stop themselves from acting like morons in that moment and i'm including me you're right you're right <laughs> so, you're right so this is where this is where we need to see a really good story of a character doing that thing that the audience is like, Ugh, you know, yeah. why, why doesn't he just run away or whatever, get a weapon or call nine one one. They need to do that and then immediately be punished for it. Yeah. Like do the <laughs> logical thing in quotes. That's exactly right. Completely. That's exactly yeah. right. I can you find that. So, and, and horror is a morality play. So it, it's appropriate to do that. Like, okay, is it reasonable that you ran up? In a total terror, yes, but we have to murder you because that's the moral of the story. Don't be dumb. Yeah. Okay, Krebs. I know okay. you're sitting there just gently shaking your head, rocking <laughs> back and forth. You're like, here we go. He's here done his pre-workout. He's done his stretches. Now it's time to run. Um, you know, I it's going to sound a little bit like a repeat or a broken record, but uh, when it comes to American horror, uh, I am I am absolutely done with jump scares. I am absolutely done with gore porn or, you know, the, the splatterpunk scene does not do it for me. It doesn't mean anything anymore. We've actually gotten to a point in our media where, you know, it used to be if a character in a television show died, in a radio show died, in a film died, there was some moral impact there that impacted the audience. And, and I'm reaching all the way back to like the 30s and the 40s, you know, people who had seen world wars. Um, and now we're at a point where death and dismemberment and victimization is replete through our media. So a character dies and it's like, oh, well, that, yeah. you know, I like them. They're gone. Or, um, you know, it, they try to find other points of sympathy other than they lost their life because losing their life in a show doesn't mean anything to us anymore. Uh, and that maybe that's a, maybe that's an editorial on, on society at this point, but, um, jump scares are cheap and they don't mean anything there. There are certain jump scares again, back to Michael Brent's comment. If you use them intelligently, they can be great, but more and more that's becoming harder to do with jump scares because the buildups are typical. The sound cues are typical. The visual cues are typical. You have to do something that hasn't been done. In fact, uh, when, when we see it done intelligently, it's usually the buildup that doesn't pay off. That makes us even more uneasy. And then they have to wait until your guard is completely down before it means anything. Uh, and that becomes more and more difficult. So jump Parasite. scares. What's that? Parasite. Uh, parasite. Okay, so feeling that tension 
ratchet up every minute or so as you're like, oh, he's about to get caught. He's about to get caught. And you think that release is coming. And then it just. Yeah. Yeah. Parasite. Parasite has some interesting elements to it. I I don't think I was as taken with the film as the Academy was, but um, <laughs> but it definitely had its qualities and it, and it was fascinating to watch. Uh, but I didn't I I didn't find I, I found it suspenseful. I did. I did not find it frightening or terrifying. Um, and, and the same thing's true of like gore porn and splatter punk. We as Americans, we have depended for so long on blood and gore and viscera. Um, but uh, going back again to the ring and the grudge, the ring and the grudge uh, uh, are sort of uh, the grudge is like one of the scariest movies I've ever seen in my life. And I still love watching that movie to this day. It still makes me uneasy. The sequels were never as good as the original. And the original was, of course, the Americanized version of, of the original Juon. But um, if you watch Juon, it's even more terrifying than the so American disturbing. version. And it, and it has to do with mm-hmm. um, cultural boundaries. And we have some implicit unspoken ones that we try to violate when we're in horror, but we're so used to it that when you go to another culture that has different boundaries and they violate it differently, it's horribly unsettling. Um, so yeah, there's, there's, um, there's a certain level of, uh, pardon the expression, but it's like cinematic bad touch, right? Like it just, it makes you feel violated in some way. Um, those are the horror films. If we're talking about horror that are most effective, if we're talking about thrillers and suspense, that's different. And if I can just put the cherry on top, um, the most uh, I love scary video games and I find them to be more effective than any other media at this point because I'm so personally involved in what happens that uh, I immediately have empathy for whatever's in the game. And I know the game is fake and I'm a, I'm a software developer. I know it's code, but it has so much more impact because now I'm empathetically connected to what's going on. Um, and there is a demo, an infamous demo uh, found on PS4 called PT Demo. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it was it was the demo that was to it was to tease. Um, in fact, it was referred to as playable teaser. That's what PT is for a new Silent Hill game. And Silent Hill is mm-hmm. the scariest video game series of all time. Silent uh, Hill Two. Silent Hill Two is unstoppable. The yeah. original, the original, yep. the the yep. redo was okay, but the original. Um, and uh, it was this teaser that you could play through, and it was so simple and so basic. Uh, and it was utterly horrifying. And I and I just found out recently this year, and this PT demo is like a, a four or five years old now. Um, the game was canceled, uh, and PT demo is now defunct. Um, but what I realized, I was constantly uneasy. And one of the most brilliant things is there's this ghost named Lisa. That's the creature, the ghost that you're the apparition you're trying to avoid, and that you eventually have to face. Um, but there's this apparition, Lisa, and I found out recently someone cracked the code and they pulled the camera away from the first person perspective. And what they discovered is that the ghost Lisa is always behind you at all times. It makes oh. all of it makes all of your shadows not quite right. It that makes is, any right. That is so much worse. It's, it's a video game. You're not supposed to know that that's happening. You're not supposed, but there's something subconscious. There is that. There is that. You know that feeling of someone behind you. It was in the game. It was pure genius. Wow. Um, 
And and that's something I've never seen done before. Uh, in movies, they portray it, but it's become tropish. And so you, you expect it. But now you've got a game where you're in control of everything. It doesn't matter where you turn. It's always behind you. You can never catch it that way, but it's always there. And somehow, as the player, you sense it. And it was utterly unsettling. And when I found out that that's what was really going on, Years later, I was like, oh, my gosh, that's that's freaking genius. Awesome. So, yeah, that's that is an example of truly effective horror. It's psychological. It's no longer physiological. Well, I know we don't have too much more time. Like um, zero. Yeah, we are actually yeah. pretty hard out of time. But uh, where can we find you guys? Um, right behind you at all times. Yeah, right. <laughs> I watch you sleep. Um, the I'm you can find me by googling my first name, Michael Brent. It's all one word, and I'm the only Michael Brent in the whole world. Um, I am coming out with a a book next week on October 30th called Tired, so very tired. Um, which is actually on my fan page. I started posting kind of parody posts about being out of stuff when the toilet paper run happened like i was out of baby corn can someone airlift me baby corn i really am out of it and everyone's hoarding it and it turned into this series so it's it's an online journal of a version of me that goes very quickly insane while in isolation so i'm battling like a coat rack and you know there's this triumvirate of evil between the kitchen uh, oven and the couch and the easy chair and um so you can you can google that and uh tired so very tired or just michael brenton i'll pop up real easy how wonderfully relevant that's great yeah it's super fun <laughs> And then to find me, I've got a podcast called Copper Shock. It's available on most any place where you get your podcasts. I've got Spotify. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, all of the most any podcast place that you like to go to. So if you find me over there at Copper Shock, I'll be there. And Tasha, if we only had time in the world to listen to one episode of Copper Shock, what is the absolute must listen to episode? The Cohoke Ghost. That is a really good episode. Awesome. And Michael Brent Collins, if we could only read one of your books before we die, what's the one book that we have to read of yours? Oh, crap. Uh, geez, I don't know. Strangers. Oh, The Forest, because it's my most recent. I'll always just pimp my most recent one. <laughs> <laughs> Soon to be replaced with Tired. I'm so tired. Yep. Yeah, there, there's Twisted, right? That one. Yep. Well, it's the thing is, I've got 40 and they range in genre from Western yeah, romance to horror. So it's like, which one's my favorite? I don't know. What do you want to read today? I've got one for you. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you both for being here. This was, oh my gosh, yes. this was, as a horror fan, this was. Uh, this was a dream come true. This was a wonderful episode for me personally. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you oh, thank guys. You so let, much for let having me us. Know, yeah. Let me know when the podcast hits and I'll, I'll share the link around. All right. Yes, of course. Me too. Thank okay, you guys. So, uh, with that said, folks, we're out of here. Thank All you right. So much. Have a good one, guys. It was a pleasure to meet y'all. And dungeon crawlers, tell your story, whatever may come. <laughs> and remember, like the lone survivor of any for of any horror film. Be epic. Don't suck. Remember, the force will be with you.